Take, for instance, the subject of soul sleep. A person who holds a position of soul sleep has a certain anthropological view. Their theology on man's makeup is such that it allows for them to believe that at the point of death, the person is now unconscious until the resurrection. They may call it soul sleep or some other name, but they don't believe that there's any conscious existence at, after the moment of death. Now looking at that from a pastoral standpoint, if you held that position and you have to take a funeral, for instance, and this is a believer in Jesus Christ, you, you obviously can sense that there's going to be some difficulties um, in trying to bring consolation, comfort, assurance, and maybe even preaching the gospel in su in, to some degree when you're confined to that belief that there is an unconsciousness of the state of this person at this particular time, rather than being able to say freely, absent from the body, is present with the Lord, or for to, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You know, those kinds of passages obviously would not be in your repertoire of verses because you don't believe that that's a reality at that moment in time. Other examples would be, for instance, what your theology is on infant eschatology, infants who die uh, in their infancy. Uh, where are they? Are they with the Lord? Uh, this is a big subject, I realize that, and I'm not going to necessarily give you an idea of where my position would be on this particular view, but I believe they, they would have to be elect people to, to go to heaven, of course, and whether all children are elect or not would determine how you would understand the, the post-mortem position of this individual that died. I had to do a funeral back a few years ago. It was an odd request. I never had one. Maybe some of you have, or I don't know if you have, but um, a woman lost her baby in the fifth month of her pregnancy, and she wanted to have a funeral service, a burial, got a little casket about this big, and have a funeral. And I was, you know, she was a member of our church, so I was asked to do that. Um, of course, I see the child as a, as a human being, no matter at what stage. But nevertheless, um, obviously the mother, and I've seen other cases like this where there's a lot of stress that a mother has at the point when they lose a baby, whether in the womb or out of the womb, it's, it's very difficult on the person. So those of you who are elders, pastors, obviously your position on that's going to affect the way in which you minister to this particular inv individual. Even something wider, like say for instance, uh, Arminian soteriology is going to affect the methodology that someone's going to use in the way in which they approach evangelism. And that becomes very obvious. Uh, so there's another example where one's theology affects the way in which they minister. Uh, annihilationists, again, those who believe that a person uh, does not exist after their death until the resurrection, at the point of resurrection, uh, they are reanimated in body and in spirit. They appear at the judgment seat of Christ. And for those that are not saved, they are exterminated at that point so that they cease to exist forever. They'll never exist consciously at all. They're totally puffed out of existence. Again, this is going to influence, I believe, if you hold that position, it will influence the urgency of evangelism, the seriousness of sin, and also the value of the human soul. I once, as you 
heard a little autobiographical sketch of my journeys in churches and communions of saints. At one time among the Plymouth Brethren, one particular group um, had an avid position that we were the canonical church of all churches. Sort of cultish, I would say. That only those who were a part of your communion were permitted to break bread with you. And that was the position that I held at that time. And I remember I was doing some evangelism in a park, and um, I met a, a, a charismatic pastor that I had known years before that. And we engaged in conversation, and um, we started walking down the sidewalk together. And they said, well, maybe I'll come over and break bread with you guys sometime. And right away I started to cringe, like, oh, no. He said, that would be all right, wouldn't it? And I had to, because of my position at that time, I had to say, well, brother, you... You wouldn't be able to uh, partake of the elements. He says, what? I says, yeah. Why is that? Well, I said, well, brother, you're not walking in the truth. And uh, you're, uh, you're, you're not in the right place. And he, this, this, is real, this really happened. He backed up. And I'm, we're on, walking on the sidewalk. And I can, he lifted up his hands and he prayed. He said, Lord, deliver this man from this evil doctrine and Demons come out of him. He tried to do an exorcism on me right on the spot. And it, 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 traffic is flying by and this Pentecostal is going bananas over me. Get out of this man. And, you know, guess what happened? I'll take it. He delivered me. Because a short time after that, I'm telling you, I had a switch of a theological perspective on our exclusiveness in claims to the Lord's table. We believed that we were the ones that were truly outside the camp, but inside the veil, and all others were still lingering in the shadows of Christendom and didn't have rights to the Lord's table. That was a damnable doctrine. I didn't know it at the time, but I really think that my brother Pentecostal, I think the Lord heard his prayer in some ways because it was shortly after that that my apologetics changed and um, I really felt liberated from, from that bondage and freed myself and went elsewhere shortly thereafter. So God is good in, in the way in which he operates. I want to turn it with you now to Hebrews chapter 8. And the, this is the reason why I really think I'm up here or wanted to be up here or accept John's offer and that was to talk about the impact particularly of New Covenant theology on on pastoring which may sound, I don't, does that sound kind of strange to you? I mean have you ever thought of that? Um, does that have any impact in, which, in the way in which we shepherd the flock of God? Um, not just from a doctrinal standpoint but from a caring compassionate counseling perspective is there a correlation between the theology that we would embrace and the way in which we would minister to our people and my supposition is that yes there is a correlation between the two and I know you know the passage very well and of course it's a quotation from Jeremiah uh, 31 31 and following let's look at Hebrews 8 verse 8 I'm reading the King James. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, which, by the way, is left out in the 10th chapter when the same portion is cited. And I think there's a reason for that. But 
I'll leave that off for now. A new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt because they continued not in my covenant and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. Verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. And here it is, the doctrine of the new covenant. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts. I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man, every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities I will remember no more. I think there are three points to this prophecy of Jeremiah 31, which is fulfilled. We know in the New Testament when Jesus took the bread and broke and says, this is my body, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the remission of sins in the institution of the New Testament uh, doctrine of the, rather the new covenant was instituted at that point and now we're in the era and integrally connected in a part of this new covenant promise that Jesus made with his people. How then does it differ from the old covenant? Is it similar? Is it identical? Is it just a, a, a ramification of it or is there some new ingredients in it that makes it vary from the Old Testament covenant that's of significance for us. The first thing it does tell us is that there's laws that are put and written on the heart. It's the internalization of the law. I'm not going to talk about the law, but what law that is particularly at this point, but I think the emphasis here should be placed on the fact that it's internalized. Internalized versus externalized as was the old covenant written on the tables of stone. The second point is that there's no need in the new covenant period of time, there's no need for inner covenantal community evangelism. In other words, of the constituents of the new covenant, persons do not need to be converted. They are converted. You can't be in it unless you are converted. So therefore, the new covenant community is composed of strictly those that have been born of the Spirit of God. So there's no evangelism necessary. And that obviously is different than in the old covenant where there were persons who were part of it that we know were even uh, evil, that were... Um, children of the devil that were um, sons of Belial, etc. But not so in this covenant. And then the last major point, I think, of this new covenant is that there's a personal knowledge of the Lord. Every individual is a regenerated person, and with regeneration comes a knowledge of the Lord. From this text, we don't get necessarily the augmentation or the enhancement of the relationship 
that a believer has to God, but we do in other passages. For instance, when Jesus says in John chapter 20, I go to my God and to your God and to my Father and to your Father. Romans 8, Galatians 4 talks about the spirit of adoption that individual believers have that enables us to have that swelling up of truth and experience and utterance to call God our Father. That's unique. That's New Testament language. That would be foreign to an Old Testament Israelite. The usage of the word Father for Israel is sparsely used in the Old Testament and some of the major prophets, Jeremiah and elsewhere. But I think even the use of that there is it's more of a paternal oversight of the people of God and not an inference, really, of a personal father-child relationship like you do have in the New Testament. And that is something that is absolutely precious, that we have this kind of relationship with with Almighty God, that we can address Him in this way. The Muslims would have and do have a tremendous problem with us thinking of God in this sort of uh, mundane way, this earthly language of calling God Father or our Father who art in heaven. To them, that's, that's bizarre. It not, not, wouldn't be so bizarre to an Old Testament Israelite, but still, it would be strange language. So, Jesus' ministry in the church age has elevated the people of God to the degree that we can call his father our father, his God our God. There's a personal claim and rights to be called the children of God. And that's what the Spirit creates within us. There are some other points that need to be made about this Hebrews passage. And I would like to give you six different points about it and how we compare theologies here and how they impact our pastoring of people. The first would be, I've already mentioned this, we believe in a regenerate church versus a, quote, covenant church. Regeneration is an absolute necessity for anyone to be a part of the church. God is calling out of the nations a people for his name. You have to be called by God to be incorporated into the family of God. You're not born into it, as it says in John 1.13, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now, Old Testament people were in the covenant because of some of these things, because of the blood, because of the will of the flesh, because of the will of the man. But now, the axe is laid to the root, now a new era has begun, and it's only those who are born again, those who are elect of God, those who are regenerated people, are those that are part of this new covenant. Therefore, when pastoring people, uh, we are able to associate with them. If you look at the covenantalist view of this, there's no certainty, and not that anybody can be certain of anybody's regeneration. And I think it's important as, uh, and I'd like to talk about this probably at one of the latter points, but I'll mention something about it now. It's important that we be careful about our receiving individual people into the membership of the church. I strongly advise that we be wise, 
that we be careful, that we be slow, that we be discerning. Um, because people, for varieties of reasons, are going to want to join themselves to our local church. Uh, I'll give an example, for instance, uh, in the older days. I know D.L. Moody, for instance, he uh, was converted and sought to join himself to a Boston church right there at the Boston Common. And uh, a common way that elders would interview people would be like this. Mr. Moody, tell us about your conversion. And D.L. Moody would explain how he got converted. And they'd say, fine, thank you for sharing with us your, what Christ has done for you. Now, we want you to tell us what Christ is doing in you. Those are, that is an important second question to ask a potential member of, who is seeking to come into the local church. Not only what Christ has done for you, and that's sufficient, don't misunderstand me, but the proof that Christ has done something for you is that he's doing something in you. Can you say amen to that? Are you with me or against me? All right, yeah. That's important. Justification produces sanctification. If there's no sanctification, who's to believe that justification took place? They're inseparable. One leads to the other. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things pass away and all things become new. Hebrews chapter 6 talks about the things that accompany salvation. So we should look for those things that accompany salvation. Show me that you're a believer. I have my daughter's testimony. She just got saved. I'm praising God for that. My youngest daughter, 24. Can I read it to you? I really didn't plan on reading this, but I think it's an appropriate time because she was sharing with me how she's been going to church. She lives in New York City and saying how much uh, she's loving church. And I said, well, honey, if you love Jesus, the church is going to mean all that much more to you. And I'm just going to read you a little bit of some of her reply. 24 years old, hasn't been saved. Michelle and I, my wife, we've been praying for her earnestly. She says, of course I love Jesus. I got saved. And I have been growing closer and closer to him ever since. God has brought some people into my life. And, and I've made some new Christian friends. God has blessed my life in so many ways. And I'm beyond grateful to the people and the changes God has brought into my life. When I was younger, I went to church every Sunday, read my Bible, prayed, listened to, and sang Christian songs, hung out with Christian people, because I kind of had to, not necessarily because I wanted to or chose to. And for once, as an adult, I was on my own in a big city, surrounded by absolutely no one who had any interest in Jesus or faith or Christianity, and yet somehow, hallelujah, somehow I was drawn to him. Suddenly, I wanted to start actually listening to the words of every song and getting butterflies in my stomach. I started going to church every Sunday and actually listening to the preacher. And I was a preacher for many years. But she was actually <laughs> listening to the preacher and taking notes and applying those teachings to my own life. 
I started having no interest in going out and drinking and partying. Instead, I just wanted to find Christian friends and to hang out. I can honestly say from the bottom of my heart that I love the Lord with all my heart. And although I am so unworthy of his love, I am beyond grateful and blessed that he died on the cross for my sins. I found a church that I actually get pumped up in and excited to go to every Sunday. I lift my hands high in the air and close my eyes and sing my heart out to him. And when they preach, my heart is beating a mile a minute because the preachers have this amazing gift where they just pump you up and set you on fire for the Lord. I'm a Christian. I feel like it's my duty to be an example and a role model to others. To God be the glory. Thank you, sister. Um, these are the kinds of things, and, and, I, and I called her like, uh, I said, honey, do you mind if I read some of this letter of yours to my church family because so many have been praying for you? And she says, of course you can. When I called her the next day and I let her know we had an hour and a half conversation, I says, do you realize this is the first time I've ever been, talked to you, been able to talk to you like a sister in Christ and to share the things of God together and talk about the Lord and be edified? I says, you don't know how exciting this is to me. And I says, you know that letter that you wrote me? I said, how long did that take you, like an hour or two? She says, Dad, give me a break. She says, I just wrote that in five minutes. I said, that's impressive. I'm thanking God that those realities are true in your life. Well, these are the kinds of things that we need to look for in those that are converts. Now, I know, you know, we can't set one up as the model, and everyone has to sort of mimic that, but there are, I think, we have rights to have high expectations of someone that's converted. After all, the hymn writer said, heaven came down and glory filled my soul. And if that really happens, don't you expect that there's going to be a transformation in someone's life and there's going to be a heavenly attitude towards the things of God and that they're going to be different from the world? It's got to happen. If it doesn't, I would say, hold on, let's wait and see. The last thing I want to do, like Jesus said, about it says about him a smoking uh, flax will he not uh, 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 will he not in a smoking a bruised reed will he not break in a smoking flax will he not quench thank you I don't want to do that either I want to give room for someone who has a profession of faith let's see it blossom let's see if there's real life there let's see if that root has depth to it is there real soil under the ground that's going to sprout up and it's going to bring forth fruit 30, 60, or 100-fold? That's what we need to be seeing in those that profess to be children of the living God. When Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says, Unto the church of God, which is a current to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Philippians 1.1, 1, 1, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons. 1 Thessalonians 1, 4 and 5, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God, for our gospel came not unto you in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, so that we need not to say anything about you, for you yourselves testify that you are children of God by what you say, the way you live, and your faith is spread abroad. Regeneration is imperative for the new family of God. All constituents of the local church are, are outwardly in the covenant as far as covenant theology is concerned because their external signs of baptism and communion 
uh, what's significant to link them into the new covenant. And plus just their birth. And if they're born into a Christian household, a Christian parent, then the signs are applied to them and they become members of the covenant and they're therefore entitled to be members of the local church. The second point in regards to the doctrine of the new covenant in a general way is that, and this goes back to what we mentioned earlier in the first session about the priesthood of all believers. The priesthood of all believers. Something that uh, obviously the Reformation brought out and highlighted. Something that Catholicism had subdued tremendously so that only the clergy had rights to intercede on the behalf of people and that individuals didn't have the liberties that a priest would and they had to go through the mediatorial uh, work of a priest and their prayers to be able to reach God in some ways. The covenantal position, and this is one of the reasons why um, the 1689, in my opinion, uh, harbors the same kind of position as the Westminster does, when it says under the heading of the Lord's Supper, it says the Lord Jesus has in his excuse me, the Lord Jesus hath in this ordinance appointed his ministers to pray and to bless the elements, to set them apart from common use to holy. This sounds like Romanism-ism, doesn't it? Notice that's what, what kind of powers an individual has. Is that right? His ministers pray and bless the elements to set them apart from common use. Or take baptism, same thing. Chapter 30 of the London Confession. Baptism, like the Lord's Supper, are holy appointments to be administered by those only who are qualified in their unto called. That's chapter 28 in the London Confession. This obviously create, creates a, a problem in the view of the priesthood of all believers. And also, it, it's elevating men to levels that really is, is, it's clergy we're talking here. And that clergy are given or endowed with abilities to be able to do things, to make a baptism sanctified, to make the Lord's Supper elements not common but sacred. That's hocus pocus, it seems to me. Um, and I'm not minimizing, I don't want to imply that God gives gifts to the church. He has put into the church the pastors and the teachers and the evangelists, its prophets, etc., for the perfecting of the saints, for the edifying of the body of Christ, etc., undoubtedly. But let's not confuse gift with some kind of elevated clergy office whereby individuals are given this privilege of sort of acting like basically an Old Testament high priesthood. C.H. McIntosh used to say that the, um, he's a former Plymouth, in my former Plymouth Brethren days, he was a well-read author, said that Catholicism is a composition of Judaism, Christianity, and paganism. And I don't think he's too far off in all of that. But I think, too, that even in covenant circles, that there's a, a transference of a lot of old covenant practices with the way, for instance, in which the 70 elders were the ones upon whom that spirit descended, is that Numbers chapter 11, and that they sort of have these special qualifications and qualities to be able to administer things in ways that the common man couldn't. Well, in New Testament Christianity, I think we have a strong emphasis on body life. It's kind of ironic that Jay Adams wrote the book Competent to Counsel, and I believe he's Presbyterian, right? 
Who's competent to counsel? Paul writes in Romans chapter 15, 13, and 14 that we are the ones who are competent to counsel. Individual people. I have rare instances in my local church where people have to come to me with the problems. You know why? Because they feel at liberty to be able to go to other people who are able to help them. I don't want to be the Moses and have people come to me like I have all the answers. A woman can deal with a woman far better than I can about some womanly things. Some men dealing with certain men things that they're dealing with, they can be helped by another brother who may have a similar problem of had similar problems in certain areas. No individual or necessarily even the elders are the only ones qualified. I would say they may be the most, should be the most qualified, but they're not necessarily the only ones qualified to be able to minister to others. When Paul writes in Galatians 6, verse 1 and 2, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, you which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness. Who is Paul referring to, the, you that are spiritual? That would be a good question that I would like to ask you guys maybe during the question and answer period. Who are the spiritual there? I, I don't think he's saying that it, it's, he's insisting that it must be the elders that are the ones that are ministering to those that have fallen to take heed to themselves because they're also made of the same stuff. And then it goes on to say in verse 2, Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. This is the body life of New Testament, New Covenant people, and this is how those who, who abide by New Covenant theology should understand their local churches. Because I believe this is the New Testament view. This is the heavenly view of how God's people are to be understood. We already mentioned this kind of in the first session. But again, talking about how, how theology or New Covenant theology will impact the way in which we pastor. If you were a covenant theologian and you have a flock of people over the which you are overseeing and you have some, quote, Sabbath breakers in your congregation, you would be obligated to be reprimanding or maybe even disciplining such individuals if you're going to be consistent with your own theological perspective because they would be in violation of one of the Ten Commandments. The way a dispensationalist would handle the Sabbath, of course, is that it has no reference whatsoever to the church because it's Jewish and it applies to the Jew and it will have application for them in the tribulation and even in the millennial, uh, Jewish millennial period of time. But New Covenant theology, I think, recognizes the reinterpretation of the Sabbath, seeing Christ as our Sabbath rest. Therefore, there is not conflict. And I don't say that there can't be different nuances on how we would observe the first day of the week. And this is where I think we can take our hands off. person wants to go fishing with his family on, on Sunday or go bowling at night with his family. It's not, I don't feel like I have to impose on them. On the other hand, if some families feel like they want to go and do visitations and they want to go to the nursing homes or, or they want to just stay home and read the word and they don't want to turn the television, either way, I say whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. So Sabbath day keeping, I don't think, is an issue that uh, is problematic for the New Covenant theologian, whereas I think it would be for the Covenant theologian. Next thing might be, we talked a little bit about this too, would be systematic. 
versus biblical theology if we have a systematic view, and by systematic I mean a view that, that's very fixed and tight, and obviously there's certain subjects of scripture that we understand systematically. Take, for instance, the subject of the, the eternal security of the believer or the perseverance of the saints, whatever you want to call that. We believe in that. We might find some scriptures that could be a little difficult to fit into that mold, but overall I think they, they do not conflict with them, certainly, and I think they, all scripture is best understood under that systematic view that when you're saved at any given point in time, you are saved forever. The whole doctrine of election would be offset if, if there was a possibility that you could lose your salvation. How could that be? Could you be elected at one point and then diselected? Could you be born again and then become unborn again? And then if you're unborn again, do you have to get born again? And if you lose it, do you have to get born again and again and again? How many times do you have to be born again, possibly? And that means you have to rebaptize people over and over again. So holding a doctrine like that, for instance, of losing one, believing that you could lose their salvation, causes so many conflicts. Here's another one that I think uh, is kind of interesting. How about political activity and social integration? H how do we view that? What role does theology pl play in our, the way in which we would advise, teach, lead uh, of the flock of God? How should we live, basically? Covenant theology would, I think, be promoters of being political activists in those among them that would be theonomist and post-millennialist, those two, two particular views within covenant theology, eschatological views, would be very avid about trying to bring about political changes that would drift into the area of Christianity so that society could be Christianized. And that's the hopes and expectations that the world eventually through Christians being the salt of the earth would so influence society in countries of the world that it could reach a level that the whole world becomes Christianized and therefore prepared for the second coming of Christ. That's why it's called post-millennium. Theonomists would want to try to insert actually the laws of the Old Testament into human governments and Things like stoning, etc., should be applied to homosexuals and, and witches, etc., etc., because they see they see United States and maybe other countries too in a theocratic way. The way Israel was ruled in the Old Testament, they think is the way in which government should be ruled or will be ruled prior to the second coming of Christ. If one holds to a tribulationalist view, that that is there's going to be two stages to the second coming of Christ, one private and then seven years later one public, meaning that the church is supposed to be raptured out before the tribulation period. It's going to affect in the way, going to affect the way in which one might pastor people in regards to tribulations or troubles or the way in which they look at government and look at human affairs that we're on sort of a sinking ship and we might, we're going to get off of it pretty soon because the Lord's going to take us out of this place. And I think, again, uh, there's another example where one affects the other with theology. of Your theological, eschatological, even sometimes views can affect the way in which you might pastor people in some of these areas. And I, again, I will admit that some people may be eclectic 
they, they may be overall a covenantal theologian or a dispensational one or even a new covenant one, and yet they can have individual distinctives. I never would have thought, and apparently Gerstner didn't think, that you could be a dispensationalist and a Calvinist at the same time, right? That's why he wrote the book, Wrongly Dividing the Word of Truth. Was that how it went, Brother Jack? Yeah. Um, I, I think he went overboard there myself, but um, nevertheless, that was, that was his perspective. But the one that I really want to talk about in the remaining minutes before we go to question and answer period is the, um, the oversight of individual people that can be oppressive versus oversight that allows for the Holy Spirit's movement in the lives of individuals. And there's a big difference between the two. Paul says in Galatians 4.19, My little children, of whom I travail in birth, until Christ be formed in you. If we want to look at the ideal pastor, I think we're going to find Paul to be one of those who's ideal in the way in which he pastors people. He says, I could come to you to the Corinthians. I could come to you with a rod. But he didn't choose to do that. He, he, he sent them the word. And we can never separate the spirit in the word. I like to think of the tr two trumpets from the, the silver trumpet. The two silver trumpets of Numbers chapter 10 had to do with the marchings and the instructions for the children of Israel. One trumpet, excuse me, the silver trumpet and the pillar. That, that's, the, that's the illustrations I want to give. The trumpet representing the sounding forth of the word and the pillar representing the spirit of the living God that both guide in the same direction, never conflict with one another. An Israelite would, it would be foreign for them to blow the trumpet for the assembly to move when the cloud hasn't moved. One would match with the other. And so it should be with the word of God. The spirit cannot be understood in a mystical, introspective way so that we have certain goosebumpy feelings that we think the Spirit is moving or leaving this or that. We need to be careful that we have the instructions of the Word and that the Word is really the life force that the Spirit of God takes and generates within us the desires to be obedient to the commandments of God. If you love me, keep my commandments. I don't know how you can divorce one from the other. The Spirit and the Word work in harmony with one another. And I would never want to see one played down uh, and the other one trumped up. Because then I think we have, an, we have a, a lack of balance here between, I think, what God wants us to have, and that is an understanding of the operation of the Spirit of God and the usage of the Word of God and how they collaborate one with another. In Philippians 2.13, Paul says to them, It is God who works in you, both the will and to do of his good pleasure. Galatians 5.10, there was a troubler, obviously, Judaizers that were among them, and he says this to them corporately, I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will be none otherwise minded, but he that troubleth you shall bear his judgment. And I wish that he were cut off. Look at the confidence that he had. Why? Because they were children of God. They had received the grace of God, the revelation of Jesus Christ to their souls. They are empowered. They are instilled. This is a doctrine of the new covenant. In 2 Corinthians 2, 
again, there's problems in the church. And Paul says, even in the way in which they were negligent in bringing back the person that apparently they excommunicated in chapter 5, that person, he says, sufficient to such a man is the punishment inflicted by the many. The many referring to the local church, the body of believers that compose the church at Corinth, he is saying to them corporately. Now, if you read First and Second Corinthians, I don't read anything about elders in either of those. And I'm not saying that they didn't have elders there. But I think one thing that we do see there, and because there's such an emphasis of body life in the integration of the eye and the hand and the foot and so on, this organism, not organization, which is a big difference from the way in which a lot of people conceive of their local churches. They run them like organizations and not as organisms. And I think New Covenant theology points us in the direction that the local church is an organism. And the way in which an organism functions best is to let it work itself out. And the way it works itself out is the way God works himself within them. And they need certainly oversight. I would not deny that. Those that take the lead over you in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, there, are, there is a need for leadership. And I'm not saying that there isn't. But oftentimes leadership can overstep its bounds and try to step on people and try to push people into a corner and put expectations upon them that they're not capable of bearing for whatever reason. It might be because of their weakness, their immaturity, their feeble at this present time. And this is why, again, it goes back to the subject of the carefulness of reception of persons into the local church. And I say again, we cannot be absolutely perfect in our perception about who is born of God. But when you have someone who's born of God, they are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. They have capacities given to them. They're able also to admonish one another. Notice that word in Romans 15, 14, able. Where did that enablement come from? It wasn't in themselves. It wasn't because they went to seminary. It wasn't because they're educated. The ability comes from God. And I'm not against seminary or against education, but I am trying to emphasize the, the life of the believer and how we need to recognize that when we oversee them. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, when brother was taking the brother, brother to law, and that before unbelievers, and Paul couldn't believe that they were allowing that. And he says, why don't you set him that is least esteemed into the church to judge? Notice that. The capacity, and I don't think this is just a, a euphemistic statement of Paul's when he says this. It's a reality. Even the least of the brothers would know that. Don't you know that you're able to judge the world, that you're going to judge the world and saints and angels? And if you're going to be judging angels, how can you not be able to judge the least of the things of this world? Of course you are. Paul is trying to give them an understanding of who they are in Jesus Christ and the way in which the Spirit of God works within them. Remember, going back to Romans, uh, excuse me, Hebrews 8, the Jeremiah 31 passage, they shall be all taught of God. In 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, 9, Paul says, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I teach you, for you yourselves are taught of God to love one another. By who? Taught of God. No human instrument there, but taught of God to love one another. That's instilled 
embedded into the life of believer to love one another. Same thing in 1 John 2.27. The anointing which you have received of him abideth in you, and you need not that any man teach you. <clears throat> but as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is truth. So a believer is anointed with the spirit of truth. And again, this is not in any way to displace or to, to play down the role of, of the leaders of the local church. Leaders of the local church need to have, though, grace from God. They need to be qualified, number one, according to 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. And let's be careful about those for myself and my local church. For 10 years, I was the sole elder. And the reason why is because there was not another qualified man. Some people would say, oh, you need another elder. God's got to give me another elder. God's got to give the church another elder. And if God doesn't give the church another elder, then we have to function in a sort of a, quote, unbiblical way, at least at this point. I don't, I don't want to use the word unbiblical, but let's say a pre, premature way until God raises up persons among us or brings someone in among us who can help feed and lead the flock of God. We don't need to micromanage people's lives. You will find this in some circles. And I'm not saying that New Covenant theology pastor, teachers, elders, that they are exempt from this. But I would hope that in my expectation be those who, who do understand the, uh, the truth of the new covenant and how it relates to, to us on a practical level, that it actually lives itself out in these practical ways in the which we pastor our people, how we can love them and care for them, and how we, we can see the Lord's at one time I used to think of the Lord's table in a way that I had to be the fence. I had to have a guardianship over that table to the point that my, I felt like I was guilty if someone was taking the Lord's Supper who shouldn't. The most I can do is I can advise. I can't handcuff people from coming up or, or, or receiving the elements. In our local church, I made a decision about, this is just a personal thing, maybe about 12 years ago when I observed that when the Lord's Supper was, was passed, when the elements were passed, it was very easy for an unconverted person who mixes themselves in the audience of believers to, re to take the element as it comes by. And to me, I felt like it was lowering the uh, value of the Lord's Supper because people were unconverted and were taking it casually. And I thought, I prayed about it and thought about it, and I said, this might be a little Catholic-y looking, but I'm going to ask people who are born again, who are saved, that know Christ is their Savior, have been baptized uh, according to the Scriptures. Uh, those people are invited to come up and partake of the Lord's Supper. So we kept the elements right up in the front, and those that stood up and walked up to the front would receive the elements. And to me, I thought that worked well, and to this day I still feel it does, because now everyone that stands up is telling everyone that is sitting down, I'm a child of God. I'm born again. I'm proclaiming the Lord's death till he comes. I belong to him. And I want that to be an emphatic point so that persons do when they stand up. They're, they're taking a stand for Christ, and they are publicly admitting that they belong to the Lord. And I feel that that's one wise way, and I'm not saying that any other church has to do that, or maybe others don't. Don't ever would never think of having people stand up and come, come to the front. But... 
That was just something that, that uh, affected me. Another thing that I employed in our church was eldership selection. Um, and again, when I was with the Presbyterians, for instance, um, they looked down, because, not because I wasn't a member, but because I wasn't ordained, I was not sort of, uh, what's the word, accredited. I was not approved for my evangelistic efforts because I didn't have the qualifications on paper. Therefore, I was sort of out of bounds in doing evangelism. Well, I couldn't live under those kinds of restrictions, but the point I'm trying to make here is that uh, uh, one has to uh, be careful about the way in which they lead the flock of God and who are those that are going to lead the flock of God. I implemented a few years ago, um, again, this is just something maybe suggestive to, to you local pastors and elders as far as reception of an individual into the eldership. When the elders feel that there's an individual who qualifies for eldership, we discuss it among ourselves and we will interview the person who could be the candidate and ask them, you know, what their feeling is, if they feel called of God, if any man desire, desire the office of an overseer. He desires a good work. Is this your heart's desire? Are we reading your ministry to the saints appropriately? And if it's affirmed that he feels the call of God to be overseeing the flock and we see the gifts and the qualifications of met, we, we announce it at the next congregational meeting to our church and we tell the church corporately that this brother has shown evidence of eldership qualifications. And we as the elders would like to see this individual functioning as an elder of our church. But since we are one flock of people, we do not want to tell you, the sheep, who your shepherds are. We want you to recognize who the shepherds are. We want you to be the judges of the individuals. Are they ministering to your heart? Do you feel like you can go to them? Are they helpful? Do they have a good reputation among you, etc.? So we, we give one year of time for that person, we invite that person, if the congregation approves of it, to come in with us elders into our meetings and some of the things that we would do as elders of the church. But he's not formally, so to speak, uh, ordained into the oversight until the following year when the congregation now must make their decision on what they feel, what has been their experience with this individual over the course of the, pa of the past year. And there's expectations, of course, and this is where we must depend upon the Holy Spirit of God, that he will give his mind to his people so that there is a unity of mind about the qualifications of this individual. And then wholeheartedly, the church corporately can adopt this person into the place of oversight and, and in a way have him ordained to that position. And I remember when, when I was first in uh, one of the first reform, the first reformed church I was in, I remember the, the head pastor said about an individual, about one of the elders, he said, I wish I never ordained him. He's way too powerful of an individual. Well, the question would be, did you do the ordaining? What involvement did the other elders have in the decision? And what, what involvement did the local church have in the decision? 
You see, your perception of him might have been different than the way other people perceived him and may have known him better than you may have known him. So it's not, and, and this is a little off the subject, I know, as to how a person's ordained into the oversight, how do they get into the oversight, I think is somewhat related to what we're talking about because I, I do believe, and I guess this would be my main emphasis here, and that when we're talking here about the, the uh, how, how New Covenant theology impacts our pastoring is that we understand by the doctrine of what the New Covenant is and how we practically employ that, that that means that individual people do have abilities divinely given to them of God that must be recognized. Now, I know you're probably thinking of your own flock and you're thinking, boy, that this person hardly has his head on straight and he's a member of the church, I certainly wouldn't want to give him the upper hand in any decision making. I, and I understand that there are weak people in the church, but those are the kind of people that need to be lifted up, the feeble-minded, those that are weak, they need to be strengthened, and we as overseers need to know how to handle them delicately, lovingly. Sometimes it's better to let give a little slack and let people sort of come their own way and in God's time and in God's way. If they're certainly out of the way, then yes, as shepherds, we need to go after the sheep and we need to try to bring them into the fold. But how we do that is so important. It's expected of us that we speak like the great shepherd who loves all of his flock. And if we're his under shepherds, there's an expectation that, that we're, that we're going to be just like him. We want people to be direct. We want to direct people. This is New Covenant theology. We want to direct people to Christ. We want to see he's your head. He's your leader. You're answerable to him. I'm at the most assigned post. I just want to direct you to Christ. It's to him that you have to do. He's able to make you stand, Romans chapter 14, verse 4 says. So I'm only going to lead the life before you. I want to be an example of what a Christian should be, a Christ follower should be. And I hope that, and, and I think the New Testament places a strong emphasis on be thou an example of the believers in word and conversation and spirit and faith and purity. That's how we lead the flock of God. Peter says, uh, not being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. So often in some theological camps, there's, there's a, a rod in their hand and they're whipping the people of God because they're trying to conform them into an image that they think they should be at. And as a result, it drives the flock of way, it causes division, it hurt. And some genuine believers never recover. I believe that there are real believers that are now disassociated with churches because they've been wrongly handled, and I think I could say manhandled, rather than God-handled. And when man takes, puts his hand on the ark, and not let God be in control, then we're in trouble. And I think we can step back. I don't think we have to be on people's cases all the time and detecting and, and supervising and, and like watchdog the flock of God. Entrust them to the Lord. And you watch how God is going to work in their lives. Preach the word, teach the truth, and let them bring me, like the psalmist says, send out thy word and thy truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to thy holy hill into thy tabernacles. Isaiah 40, I mean Psalm 43, verse 3. You will see that happen because we believe in the doctrine that the Holy Spirit is empowering individuals, enabling individuals. 
instructing individuals. They're taught of God. They're regenerate. They're in the family of God. They have the law of Christ internalized within them. Yes, the law of Christ internalized within them, and they're going to want to bear one another's burdens so that the pastors don't have to be the ones upon whom all of the problems get put into their laps. No, I think the family of God can deal with it, and certainly the overseers need to manage spiritually the flock of God, but do it in a way that's gentle, that's kind, that's, that's Holy Spirit-led and fruitful, and I think we'll see uh, great, great things that God's going to do within the local churches. I think I'm going to end right there. When you were speaking, I wrote this question down, and then you sort of answered it. Are you saying any believing men may baptize or that any believing men may administer at the Lord's Supper? Because you seem to say that, but then yeah. you didn't say That's that. That's a good question. I didn't really get into that part. I did want to say what I was trying to emphasize was that, that both the Lord's Supper and baptism could only be administered by those who were the ordained, the duly appointed one as the Westminster and uh, 1689 and other confessions would permit. As to could anybody baptized? I wouldn't think anybody. I would think a, a person that's had a major role in that individual's life would be significant. And I have advised certain persons who have been saved, who have been influenced by another brother, brother's influence on them, that they be the one to do the baptizing. So I have stood back and watched other brothers in our church baptize other people. I wouldn't personally say that a sister should be baptizing. In, in, there may be some instances, but in general, I would say that I think that's a man's role because of just in general what the thrust of the New Testament says about uh, the role of men, I think, in the church. Yeah, the question is to, uh, when you were talking about uh, interviewing someone for church membership, yeah. you said that second question, what has Christ done in you? Um, and so one of the questions I had was if you, you talk with that person and, and the answers to that question um, uh, just don't seem like they're enough to, to convince you that this person is a believer. So you, know, you talk with your elders and, and you consider what they had to say and, and you want to wait for that period. Um, how do you do that practically in a way that you're careful um, with that person, but also I assume with the body of believers who know that this person is being considered for membership, that you don't conflate, you know, justification and sanctification, you know, so that they, they understand this process, what's going on here is, is, uh, is a consideration, you know, during a period, but you don't want them to start confusing the difference between justification and sanctification. You, you don't want to confuse the candidate? Yeah, the, and the, the candidate, and also I assume you know, the believers, you know, the body there probably knows that they're being interviewed, and now and now there's possibly going to be a period of time where you're going to wait and see, uh, you know, you're going to be looking for fruit, I assume. But how do we, you know, make sure that that people aren't going to then confuse? Oh, they're going to they're going to prove their you know, that they're believers. Um, they're going to earn that. They're going to, you know, how do, how do we how are we careful in that? Right. I, I can. I think I got your point. I think what you're suggesting is that. Are we leaving an impression that a person has to meet certain expectations of right. sanctification for us to be certain of their justification? Yeah. Is yeah. that what yeah, yeah, you're suggesting? Yep. Yep. Yeah. yeah, that's a good question. And this is where wisdom needs to be applied. I had a, a, a young boy come up to me, nine years old. His mother brought him up. 
He's been crying the last two times we had the Lord's Supper because he's insisting that he's saved and he wants to partake of the Lord's Supper. And he feels like he's denying the Lord uh, the opportunity for him to express his gratitude. I don't want to in any way uh, discourage that little young man. As a matter of fact, I'm greatly encouraged. And I, I talked to his mother, and she's very understanding. And um, I spent time with her and him, um, and it's just explaining that because of his age and because children are often impressionable um, and they haven't been that long in the church, that I think it would be wise to wait. But I said, don't take that as a discouragement. Take that as an encouragement. If you know the Lord, keep reading the word. Keep studying the scriptures. Pray. Keep coming to church. Go to the Sunday school classes. Ask questions and talk and so on. And in time, and I talked a little bit with the other elders about it, and none of us are in any way wanting to discourage him, but there, there is that sort of tension. Well, and this is another category. How do, you, how do you deal with children when they are seeking membership or the parent thinks that they're entitled to be baptized at this point? Well, membership is another, another category. I would never think of a nine-year-old as being a member of the church because of at least my view of the role of members in the, in the local church and their participation in the, the way in which the church governs herself. A child at, at, at an age like that certainly wouldn't be a contributor. Not that every member has to be a contributor, but uh, membership is a secondary issue here. I think the important issue would be his entitlement to be baptized. Is he a child of God? And if so, let's, uh, let's pray about how, that the Lord would direct us so that we could... Uh, but what we want to be careful is that we don't want to start some kind of a youth little kid movement in the church. Well, oh, so-and-so is getting baptized. I want to get baptized too. You know, it's just, you've got to be very careful with children. And I don't say I have the answers. And, and I think we probably could vary on how we, we deal with that. In our church, I don't think we have anyone less than a teenager. There might be one or two, but very few would break bread in our, in our local church. Um, and I think it's, it's a, partly a, parent, a parental uh, decision involvement with that as well. My question to you is how are members of the Sovereign Grace Chapel identified uh, what are some of the distinctives or the, uh, the privileges, responsibilities that are identified at your church? Could you talk about church member you mentioned as a secondary issue? Uh, can you expound on that and give me some details? That's, that's a very good point. Um, what involvement do the members of the church have with the decisions that the church might make? Are they equal to elders in their uh, judgment? If, if I could take a couple minutes, I think you might find this relevant and maybe significant to, to your church. Uh, something I wrote up maybe in the last year or so uh, that we adopted in our constitution. We advocate plural, that is eldership, because the biblical rule is that two are better than one and in the multitude of counselors there is safety. We expect that each elder meets the requirements of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 and that they constantly revisit those standards for renewal and personal examination. We grant the congregation and along with the elders the right to determine the quality of an elder candidate and expect them to affirm or deny the candidate the position of elder and even deacon as well. A year probation is allotted to the elder candidate to be examined by the elders, himself and the flock for the finalizing of his calling to be recognized as an overseer. 
This is a method we find safe and sure. I have that in parentheses. We are elder-led, not ruled, and congregationally engaged. Rule connotes heavy-handedness and invincible authority. Church elders do not dictate from high towers, but integrate in the trenches of where the people of God are, seeking to relate fully with their brothers and sisters. Church elders are big on influence, but small on control. Church elders are tough when it comes to truth, but tender when it comes to love. Elders are leaders, but also ones who listen to those they lead. Elders inform the church when excommunication is necessary and expect affirmation from the congregation. Though they don't have a vote on the matter, they have a voice. If a wise and conscientious member seeks further explanation for the action, it is our glad duty to explain the reasons for our decision. We are not a behind-closed-doors caucus, but have an open-door policy for informative engagement with our people. We have a pulse reading of our flock and believe our deacons and deaconesses are a good bridge to the climate of our church body. Congregationalism does not mean pure democracy. True biblical congregationalism grants liberty to the body to be involved in the life of the church, yet recognize the role of her leaders to guide the church with high and holy standards. For the elders must give an account, Hebrews 13, 7 and James 3, 1. If perchance, perchance the eldership is questioned by wise individuals who use the word with skill, it behooves the overseers to humbly admit their folly and reverse their judgment, even though this seems ironical, namely that the presbyters could be wrong and the non-elders be right. The truth of scripture must prevail and the judgment proposed must be overridden. Sovereign Grace Chapel wants to give Christ the preeminence in all things and allow his Holy Spirit to give liberty that God in all things will be that God in all things will be glorified. Sovereign Grace Chapel wants to be willing to reform herself if greater light is shed on areas that we may de be deficient. So I think that kind of answers your question about the involvement of the of the membership in the integration and separation as well with the eldership. When you say identified, you mean. Okay, well, when we, when, we, when we call the congregational meeting together, we actually have a role. Persons, when, when they seek to join themselves to the church and are received into the membership, then they become members. And I do think membership is, uh, is stated in 1 Corinthians 14, when the whole church become together into one place, and there come in an unlearned or an unbeliever. That word unlearned probably is referring to a, a premature Christian, someone who's just learning Christian doctrine, like a, like a catechumen, if we could use that word. They haven't yet come to a final conclusion of the matter spiritually or whatever. They're, they're coming as visitors and they're not involved in the membership or uh, take 1 Corinthians 5 when it talks about the excommunication of the individual. That's a judgment that the church must make. And if you, if you don't have an inclusive number of people, then how can the decision be made? You don't have any order. And in the same chapter at the end, it says, do you not judge them that are within? God judges them that are without. So you have to have a within group of people and a without. And some of the without are members of the body of Christ universally, but they're not for whatever reason, they have not chosen to become members of the local church. And I advise people who are Christians to come to our church, why not sit back six months and watch and wait and see if this is the right place for you? 
it, it's far safer on, for you and for us. And we're not going to treat you like a second-class citizen. If you're the Lord's, we love you as much as anybody else. We're all God's children as far as that's concerned. But when it comes to membership, because there are certain ramifications to that, we want to be sure that you see things uh, the way we do. If not, we're going to have some conflict. So why, why should we have conflicts? Let's, let's avoid that. Go ahead, Brother John. I just thought I'd better stand up or you're going to preach for another hour. Thank you. No, <laughs> your, your son told me, 2.30, that's it. Uh, it makes me a little nervous. Uh, Luke says in Acts, those who accepted his message were baptized. And we're inserting a transitional period, uh, an examination period. It seems that there was a very immediate response to the hearts that were believing in Jesus in obedience they submitted to baptism. So it's a question on how soon do you baptize somebody or? Well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm questioning this extended period of examination time. Oh, for what? For, for baptism. Oh, have we talked about that? We were talking about membership. And no, I, you, uh, initially we were talking about baptism, I thought. Yeah, she, she asked who could do the baptizing. Was it just the elders? nine-year-old boy oh I see what you're saying yeah well it's only because it's a child and because of their they're so impressionable um, I'd rather I'd rather be errant on the cautious side than uh, but do you I, apply that principle to the entire uh, congregation or people who are coming to you whatever their age no not 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 nearly and, like I would with a child personally and again, I do this jointly with, with fellow elders for their input yeah. so that we Jesus, act. Jesus said something about a little child and yes. accepting him. Correct. Yes, I think we need to be a little careful there that children may demonstrate very quickly and very early in life that they are genuinely born of the Spirit. And if that kid was already into his Bible and, 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 and Hurt and injured because he couldn't fellowship in the Lord's table. Yeah, amen. I'd be being the I'm with you, brother, and it, it, it touches my heart. I'm sensitive to that. Um, and this is where I weigh in heavily on the parents, especially if they're if they're wiser parents and they they've got good judgment. We would weigh in on, on on what the parents view is because the parent is obviously with them 24 hours a day, and they see far more than what I could see, and so. I tap into them, and, and that has a lot to do with my decision. And if a parent was impressing upon us that their child is, is, is saved, I would say, well, let's baptize a child. So um, I'm still learning, brother. Thank you for coming up and sharing that. Um, I don't have all the answers and lack wisdom in many ways. Go ahead, brother. Yeah, I've got a question. It sounds like you've got a pretty well-defined church constitution. Whatever you just read from was very specific. Um, you quoted earlier from the London Baptist Confession. This kind of came up at lunchtime. I guess I would just like your thoughts on constitutions, creeds, confessions. At what point do these documents that we're trying to say this well defines the Christian faith become something that is enslaving to us? Yeah. Well, first of all, you'd have to do a study on confessions and make a decision. Do you want to be confessional church? That is, you'll adopt a certain confession. And I think we're all Baptistic here, so our choices would be pretty much relegated to a Calvinistic Baptistic confession, which would leave us with the Londons, the 1644, the 46, and the 89. And we've, we've adopted the 1646 because we feel that there's 
what it says is more in line, far more in line than any of the other confessions, London or otherwise, but at the same time, we wouldn't want to make that our handbook to the Bible either, so that if we felt that the scriptures were right on a certain point, then it would trump whatever that confession, and we may have to make an amendment on that, but we, we, we state it in such a way that it's, it's only a guide and in, in, in they're often very good when it comes to the doctrines of the Trinity, the providence of God, and it's the nature of God, and the Trinity of the deity of Christ, and so on. So um, I don't know how many of you folks would have confessions as a part of your constitution or not, but uh, um, we started, when I came in, it was a 1689, and, and, and because of there were a number of points in that, at least a half a dozen or so, that I, I couldn't with good conscience concede to, and others would see that as well. You know, we, we decided to uh, replace that with uh, the 46. But again, it doesn't have such a high priority that we would say, okay, let's go for the answer and then turn up page so-and-so in the confession, and that, that solves it. I think it can be... Uh, a handy guide for maybe an inquirer, someone interested in membership, when, because it's so exhaustive in some, some areas that I would say that for the most part we can say amen to just about everything, maybe in the 1646, or close to everything. Uh-oh. It's my time to hide now. Look at the name tag. <laughs> it says Billy Jeffrey on his name tag. Okay. Billy, you're welcome. Anytime. <laughs> Uh, you mentioned the 1646. Let me just uh, pick up on that. Uh, chapter 41, uh, you, you had read the 1689. Look and listen to the contrast. Oh, okay. uh, the person designed by Christ to dispense baptism, the scripture holds forth to be a disciple, it being nowhere tied to a particular church officer or person extraordinarily sent the commission and joining the administration being given to them as considered disciples, being men able to preach the gospel. Now I looked, and maybe it's my eyesight or something, but I can't find where they have a similar statement concerning the administration of communion. It doesn't seem to be addressed in that confession. In the 46, you mean? Right. Right. Now that, to lead into um, another thing, uh, I was at the 2009 Council on Dispensational Hermeneutics, and it was painful uh, that the papers from that have since been published in a volume edited by Mike, Dr. Mike Stallard. And at that council, three, just so people are aware, the uh, traditional dispensational position on some of these things is not uh, monolithic. There is a variety of views that came out and, and some of that was actually extracted in the question and answer time with uh, questions directed from like Elliot Johnson. There were three different views on this. When was the new covenant ratified and or inaugurated? One view was that it was ratified, the new covenant was ratified and inaugurated at the cross. There are those who were there who, and these are all traditional dispensational, every one of them. The, the second view was that it was ratified at the cross, but not inaugurated. And that's understandable in, in that group. The, the New Covenant. 
but it could not be inaugurated until Israel was reinstated. Okay, so they're, they're maintaining that view. The third view, the most extreme view, was that it was neither, neither ratified nor inaugurated at the cross. It was, that was not done. And that's on record, and that paper is actually part of the book that published. Now, I, I bring that out to show that this variety of views on something like the New Covenant to lead into this. You were um, comparing and contrasting covenant theology, New Covenant theology, dispensationalism. And have you, uh, before I get into the question, have you prepared that as like a chart or a table with them laid out the way you presented no, it? No, I don't have anything like that. That might be help, helpful to do that because there was a, you, you were pointing out a lot of things in that comparison. And, and I could picture that being done as it would be very helpful for people to have that as a table or a chart with three columns, you know, in all those areas. Yeah. Anyway, um, if let me throw this out and, and, and ask the question because some of that, so much of it seemed to deal with continuity and discontinuity. Yeah. And uh, some of the terms you used were, were bordering it. Would you be comfortable saying that co covenant theology uh, is on the continuity side of the equation, dispensational theology is on the discontinuity side of the equation, and new covenant theology embraces both continuity and discontinuity. And of course, I think there's a book on the table by that title. Yeah. Is that S. Lewis Johnson's? No, no. John Riesinger. So, uh -huh. it, it, would would you think that would be a fair summation? Absolutely. Of what, I mean, you're you're rewording it in words similar to what I had said in the first lecture. Okay, that question leads into my real question. <laughs> See why you didn't want me up here? Well, it's 2:30 now, folks. Thank you for coming. Okay. Um, now, if I stood here and we had a mixed audience here, I think I can hear my friends who are covenant theologians and dispensational theologians saying, well, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. I believe in discontinuity. I think something very different happened at Pentecost, et cetera, et cetera. So we also have discontinuity, or one on another side. Wait a minute, we have continuity. We don't teach what they were teaching back in the day. There's one way of salvation and all of this. So we have continuity. And so I would back up and say, do you think it would be fair to say, even though there are teachings of discontinuity in covenant theology and teachings of continuity in dispensational theology that it's a question of emphasis or degree. I think I agree with you. Okay. And uh, th I, there are different nuances, but I would say the way you classify then first would be generically correct, mm -hmm. but with some of the nuances of, like you say, they may not necessarily, if they hold to continuity that they don't hold to a certain degree of discontinuity and vice versa. I, I, I do think you're right there on that point. Can I ask one more question? Yeah. Would you object to the continuity embraced in New Covenant theology being characterized as radical discontinuity? You've heard it done before? Heard that phrase before? Yes. In reference to New Covenant theology? Yeah, would you be comfortable if someone said, well, your con if a covenant theologian said to you, this, this Yeah, this I would be uncomfortable with that. I would say that more, that's more applicable to a dispensationalist than it would be to a New Covenant mentalist. That's what I thought. That, that's my take on, on things. And again, I think a lot of this has to do with the relevance of the understanding of New Testament quotations of the Old Testament yeah. and how do we understand them. And I think that's what kind of brings the two Testaments more together in a continuity way. 